Discover the words Elisa Morgan with a question for you as we begin part two of our study for Christmas this year called Christmas Changes Everything. When did Christmas actually become Christmas to you? This week we're considering how the original Christmas changes everything. Mm -hmm. And I hope as we process through this, it'll cause us to consider for ourselves how has Christmas changed everything for us and how is it still changing? Christmas becomes Christmas at some point when we understand it in its deepest significance, the significance of what God intended it to be, the birth of our Savior Mm -hmm. who would save us from our deep need and our deep fallenness. And so pull your chair up to the table with Elisa and Marty Hahn and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day as they take note of how for more of the characters in the Christmas story, their lives were never the same because of the birth of Jesus. For them, as for us today, Christmas changes everything. And it is good to have you here at the table as the Discover the Word group heads into part two of some conversations called Christmas Changes Everything. Taking part in this study are Mark DeHaan and Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day. As Elisa guides them through a look at some of the characters that we find in the Christmas story in both Matthew's and Luke's gospel accounts and helps them reflect on how for these characters, the birth of Jesus set in motion changes that affected the direction that their lives went. And you know, that's still true for us today. In so many ways, when Christmas becomes Christmas for us, Christmas changes everything. And so in this first segment of part two, we're going to focus on Simeon. Luke chapter two is where we find the story of how for Simeon, Christmas and meeting Jesus changed everything. We've talked about waiting before. It's such a big part of our lives, but Mm -hmm. Christmas is a time when we are often waiting for things. But just can you think about in life a time when you had to wait for something and it was not easy? For me, I think it was when we were trying to buy a house and there was all kinds of back and forth going on and we knew that there were other offers coming in and we really felt like this would be a good house for our family. We just didn't know if it was going to work out or not. And it just seemed like it took forever until finally everything was settled and we knew Mm. it's going to be good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you can't really plan until you know. Right. I have a spattering of things that keep coming to mind. The first is waiting to hear if I got into college. I remember Mm. that still. After finding out that my wife was pregnant, waiting for the baby to show up. Mm. And then I'm thinking about the very practical experiences that have happened quite regularly where I get paid every two weeks and sometimes it's a really long two weeks because <laughs> my family's counting down to that next paycheck. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, those are the things that come to mind. Yeah, it's very yeah. daily. It's very real life. You know, for me, at least it's something more more recent. I remember waiting through a long winter for hip surgery. Mm. I had found out in the fall that it was a possibility for me, and I was so ready for it, but waiting through that winter for the surgery was really... Seems like a long time. I think a lot of people can identify with that. And and I've already shared one waiting where we waited for a child through adoption and uh, four and a half years. It didn't come at Christmas. It didn't come until Easter, you know, and our first child and then our second child about two years later. But there's so many moments of waiting, waiting for a diagnosis Mm -hmm. or or waiting for a paycheck or waiting for the answer to a prayer or or waiting for a loved one to wake up and discover, hey, Jesus is real. And the Christmas season and the characters in the original Christmas story, we see a lot of waiting, don't we? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth certainly was one who waited, so was Zechariah, so was Mary, so was Joseph. You know, anybody who was involved in the pregnancies of both Jesus and John the Baptist was waiting. But as we continue in the Christmas story, and I think this is so interesting because the character we're going to look at in this conversation, we actually don't meet until Jesus is over a month old. This is a character who knew a lot about waiting. So we're talking about Simeon. 
Who is Simeon? We move on into chapter two of the book of Luke. And verses really 22 to 35 tell his story. I'd like to skate through those verses together. Maybe Daniel, Mark, let's go around and read those. And then let's unpack who is this Simeon? How did he wait? How was he changed by his wait and by Christmas? You want to start us off, Daniel? Sure. So this is Luke chapter two, verse 22. When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So I guess this is Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus. Correct. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, to pause there, Bill, would you fill in some info for us? Um, This is really from Leviticus, this law that Luke is quoting. And what's this about? Well, this is about kind of the opposite of the Zechariah and Elizabeth story, because Zechariah and Elizabeth had experienced the shame of childlessness But the gift of a child was so huge that it was seen as a gift coming directly from the Lord that God was to be thanked for. Mm -hmm. And so there was a special sacrificial ritual that was done following the birth of the child and then a period of time for the mother to go through rites of purification and so forth like that. But it was directly an acknowledgement that this child, and as we talked about before, is a patriarchal culture, especially a male child, required this special sacrifice that they went to the temple to offer. Thank you. Good background there. Okay, so Mart, pick us up as we're introduced to Simeon in verse 25. Okay, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there, and he took the child in his arms and praised God. Okay. In the next several verses, we see his praise. We read his praise. It's beautiful. And then in verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what Simeon had said about him, which was that this indeed is the consolation of Israel. This is the promise. And Simeon blessed them. Okay. And then we'll come back to the last couple of verses here in just a minute. So what do we know about Simeon? Some of it echoes what we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was devout. And he was righteous, right? Blameless again. I think most of the time when we hear Simeon's story presented, he's portrayed as an elderly man, even though the text doesn't tell us that. I think the whole idea that you're presenting, Elisa, of him waiting and that he would not die until he saw this child, I think there's a a kind of a baked-in assumption that he was old, even though the text doesn't tell us that. That's helpful. And in a way, he really puts a face to the whole nation. That's Talk good. about waiting. I mean, they had been waiting for generation after generation, for hundreds of years, for God's mm-hmm. promised son who would deliver the nation from their enemies. Yeah, in some yeah. translations, that said deliverance. Some say the word consolation. And it mm-hmm. does mean deliverance. It does mean the fulfillment of this promise. Now, in verse 25, we're told that the Holy Spirit is on Simeon as he's waiting. And then Mm -hmm. in verse 26, we're told that he receives a revelation that he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. What do you make of that? Well, it's kind of surprising because we expect him to be a priest or some kind of religious leader or something, which maybe he was, but the text makes it feel like he's just a random guy (laughs) (laughs) named Simeon, um, because all it says is there was a man in Jerusalem. But obviously he is sitting with the Lord, praying, waiting for God, listening for God's guidance, so much so that when the Holy Spirit says to him in some way, I don't know if it's a nudge or a inner sense or what it is, but he gets this sense he's supposed to go to the temple. And then you have this random guy named Simeon take Jesus out of Mary and Joseph's arms and start singing praises to God. Yeah, I think you're onto something there, Daniel. And it makes me wonder again, if there are not some echoes to Zechariah and Elizabeth who had waited so long and 
undoubtedly had prayed many, many times for a child. And so there at the temple, which was where people would go to meet with God, that's when they get the answer to their desire, Mm -hmm. their longing, their hope. And for Simeon, it makes me wonder if perhaps, like you say, Daniel, for years he had been praying that God would come to the aid of rescuing the people of Israel, deliverance and consolation, and that that was so much a theme of his prayers that God responded by welcoming him into the story. Yeah, and it feels really countercultural too, the fact that this isn't a king greeting mm-hmm. Jesus. This isn't, you know, the leader of the Pharisees or Sadducees that's greeting Jesus at the temple for this first time. It's literally an everyman. Yeah. And the whole gospel story ends up being that Jesus came for everyone and that those who are lifted up will be brought down and those who yeah. are lowly, as Mary talks about in her prayer will be lifted up. And so you have this every man right here at the beginning of the Jesus story (laughs) who gets to hold Jesus and see the fulfillment of that Beautifully said, and and every woman. I mean, the the story of Jesus' nativity, of Christmas changing everything, is for every human being. You know, it Mm -hmm. starts off with Mary and uh, with Joseph, with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then you see the shepherds, you see the magi, you see all kinds of people, you know, involved. And then we also see this moment in the temple again. Let's look at exactly what did Simeon say. We, we looked at verses 29 to 32, just referring to them, that he's praising God, taking Jesus in his arms, blessing him and praising him. After he's overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit, and clearly in verse 25, the Spirit tells him to go right there. So he's in mm-hmm. that moment, that only moment when Jesus is going to be carried up the steps and he sees him. But then in verses 34 and 35, what does he say? And Daniel, would you read those for us? Sure. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's not a very happy promise, is oh, it? Yes. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a blessing, it does it? It's haunting. It's chilling. It yeah. harkens us forward to the cross, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It seems untimely for this mm-hmm. infinitely long wait. Yeah. And yet, isn't that what the consolation and the deliverance of Israel is really going to be all about. We talked about how this is an every person's story. This deliverer, this God child coming as a baby to give us all access to redemption. You know, the reality is, is that Christmas changes this waiting Simeon from a waiting wanderer into this really fulfilled follower. But he doesn't mince words. It's like he's been given by the Holy Spirit the ability to see that there will be pain involved in the sacrifice, that the ultimate change of Christmas comes at the cross. It takes from the manger to the cross, to the resurrection, so that this every person redemption can be achieved. That's radical. Yeah, and I think that's a good caution, Elisa, because sometimes at Christmas we try to make everything feel like it's okay. And oftentimes in Christianity we act like following Jesus means that everything's going to work out the way that we expect or the way that we want. And so here we have this moment early on in Jesus' life where we're reminded that as exciting and joyful and as much good news is tied to who Jesus is, There's also the very real ugliness that the world offers too, which matches our experience as well. Because even when we come to the point of following Jesus, we discover that for as good as the news is that Jesus has rescued us and we can follow him, we still experience a lot of the pain that the world offers too. And so maybe as we find ourselves in perhaps an unexpected moment of waiting this Christmas, we remember that this very first Christmas when Jesus came had a lot of darkness around it as well. And yet the promise that one day this story will come to the end result of our redemption for God's glory. Yeah, 
waiting is a big piece of the Christmas story, isn't it? Seems like Simeon's assignment was to wait. And uh, Jesus' birth that first Christmas changed Simeon. And because he waited well and with anticipation, he didn't miss that day when the promise was fulfilled. And so how might God be inviting us to wait well this Christmas? Well, in this next segment of the conversation, we find in Luke's account of Christmas, an elderly widow who also had an amazing story that was also involved in some serious waiting because of her faithful, everyday, long-term worship of God. There was a special day, a day when Christmas changed everything. Can you think of a situation where worship became super dramatic to you, okay? I remember I was in our church. It's a really bustling church full of all kinds of different people. And my son was with me. He was maybe nine or 10. And I remember we were sung our songs. We'd sat down and listened to Pastor Robert bring a message. And then it was time for the Lord's Supper and the lights dimmed and Pastor Robert explained everything about the body of Christ. And Ethan whispered to me, can I go with you? And I thought, you know, he's understanding this. And we shuffled up and we took our Lord's Supper and we came back and sat down and he whispered to me, mom, that was super dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) And and it kind of reoriented me because I was used to participating that way, but it was one of his first moments. And I, you know, it's kind of one of those times where you sit back and you squint and you think, yeah, that that was dramatic, wasn't it? When has worship been dramatic for you? I don't know if I've told y'all this story or not, but when I was in college and then for a couple of years afterwards, I directed a singing group that traveled from our school out to churches to do concerts and so forth. And we were in Nashville recording an album. And we were at the point where we had finished laying down all the tracks. And now we were in the mix and remix phase. So I was in the studio with the engineer. And we had taken a break from the mixing of everything, and everybody else had left the room. And he said, I want you to sit here for a minute. I'm going to leave you alone, and I'm going to put on something I want you to hear that nobody's heard. This is brand new. Nobody's heard this. And I said, okay. And so he started a machine running, and I started hearing a song that would later become very, very popular. It was Phil Johnson's song, The Day He Wore My Crown. The city was Jerusalem. The time was long ago. The people called him Jesus. His crime was the love he showed. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one to blame. I caused all his pain. He gave himself the day he wore my crown. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there just bawling like a baby Mm -hmm. in that very special worship experience for me personally. What a story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can think of a couple times where, whether it was through music or just waking up early in the morning and sitting on a bench with a cup of coffee, a banana, and there was just mist. And I just remember just having this deep sense of God's very tangible presence Mm. with me in those moments. And it's hard for me to use the word dramatic because when I hear that word, I think of it in kind of manipulative ways of people being dramatic or causing drama or whatever. Drama but is I a think, bad thing. Uh huh. Yeah. But what I sense in the stories that you all have shared is just having a, a very physical, real sense of the story that we read about in the scriptures and of what God's done and of his presence. And that's what comes to mind for me when I think about that. Yeah. And Daniel, what comes to my mind is something similar. You know, for the last year or so, I've lived more by myself than I ever have in my life. Mm. But I remember any number of times living alone, having asked the Lord for help in specific situations, and then realizing in the quietness of the moment, the Lord had answered them. It was mm. like, oh, Lord, this is so, and you know, being yeah. by yourself, you can kind of shout. <laughs> you, can, you can laugh. You can do kind of crazy things and say, uh. oh, Lord, that is so you. I can't, mm. you know, it, it can be very personal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You're taking yeah. us straight into the experience of yet another character in the Christmas story. Somebody who lived alone in the presence of God for a good portion of her life. 
And she experienced a very dramatic, awe-struck, filled moment of worship. And I, I want us to look at how this happened for her. I mean, every moment is not like the ones we've described, is it? And why? Well, we could go on for a long time talking about that. But, you know, in Scripture, too, there are moments when God breaks through in an unusual way where we experience Him differently, you know, these moments of hallelujah in Scripture. And this woman is a woman who worshiped daily, and yet she had a pow moment of discovery as well. This is the story of Anna, and we only have a few verses about her, but in these few verses, we're told a lot about how Christmas, the coming of Christ, the gift of deliverance changed everything in her world. So let's read the verses. This is in in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And uh, let's just go around and read them together. Would you start us, Bill? Sure. Luke 2, verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So in our last conversation, we looked at Simeon, and he had been waiting as well. He'd been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah, the consolation, the deliverance of Israel before he died. And sure enough, in just the right moment, the Holy Spirit directs him to be just where he needs to be in order to experience Jesus. And he takes the baby from his mother and father's arms, and he praises God, and then he prophesies very, very uncomfortably over what is going to be necessary necessary for the deliverance to be fulfilled in terms of people rejecting Jesus and demanding his death on the cross. And then the next verse, Luke turns our attention to Anna. Mm. It's almost like Simeon and Anna are paired together. Mm -hmm. What do we know about Anna just from these verses? Okay, she's a what? A prophet. She's a prophet. And that's not super normal for a woman to be a prophet. In the Old Testament, we've got Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, several. The New Testament, how many women are mentioned as prophetesses? Just a couple, right? Yeah, Anna, and then in Acts 21, Philip is described as having four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. In Corinthians, it talks about the women prophesying, but it doesn't name them. This term in Hebrew for prophet means what? It means seer? Generally, we think about a prophet as someone who sees ahead, you know, tells the future kind of thing, but it also means to tell the truth in a given moment, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. we've talked about it before that in Israel you had prophet, priest, and king, and the prophet primarily represented God to the people and spoke on God's behalf to the people, whatever God's message was at that time. And so when we see the prophets in the Old Testament, I mean, occasionally you'll have a Daniel who seems to see far into the future. But most of the prophets were speaking to their generation about very specific things that God wanted them to understand. And often the message was very unwelcome. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And typically it was tied to reminding them of God's instructions and his promises Mm. and what it means to follow him. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes in the context, which is what made it unpopular to Mart's point, was that it was because they weren't following or they weren't Mm -hmm. living uh, in light of God's promises. Yeah, It's interesting here at the beginning of the New Testament, we're coming out of 400 years of silence, you know, where there hasn't been a lot of stuff about what God's going to do. And here's Anna, a very old woman who proclaims she's a prophetess and she's waiting. What else do we know about her? How old, old is she and where does she live and why is she living there and who is she <laughs> living with? What do we yeah. find out in these next verses? Well, we find that she's somewhere between 84 and 104 years old, depending on how the translators choose to put it. Right? <laughs> now, how do you do that, math? Well, um, in the translation I'm looking at, it says she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. But some translations say then she was a widow for 84 years. Okay. 
So if she was married for seven years, then probably when her husband died, she was somewhere in her early 20s because girls married quite young in that time. So you add 84 to 20-something, and you get something in the mid-105 range, something like that. whether she was one or the other, she has been a widow a long time. And where does she live? She never leaves the temple in verse Mm -hmm. 37, but worships night and day fasting and praying. She chooses to be in the temple. And there is a ritual side of her worship of fasting and praying and working around the temple. But there's also this dailiness of investing Mm -hmm. her whole life in a kind of a watchful worship. You get the impression from Luke that Anna was never not worshiping. You know, one scholar said that she made the temple her permanent home. She made worship the place where she dwelled. Don't you wonder how she pulled that out? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, how did she eat? (laughs) Where did she sleep? There's some history that around the walls of the temple that there were small rooms that were built that some of the priests and some of the super religious people lived in and things like that. There's some history to that. I can't lay my fingers on it perfectly right now, but there seems to be not like an apartment, but more like just a little cell kind of a room. Oh, that's helpful. It's like a monastic spot to worship. Anna is a woman, and I'm, I'm so glad we're spending these minutes unpacking her and and giving her flesh and blood. She's an old woman who has been waiting so long, worshiping so long with fervent hope, fervent hope as a prophetess that God would redeem his people. And then in verse 38, alongside Simeon, coming up to Mary and Joseph in that very moment assumedly led by the Holy Spirit, she gave thanks to God. Kind of like you, Mart, (laughs) in your quiet moment. Uh Wow, you just did that, God. Spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She moved from this woman who worshipped in fervent hope to a woman who worshipped with experienced conviction, ongoingly, daily routine, never not worshipping. And it just makes me wonder how this example of this character with her ongoing worship can shape our ongoing worship so that maybe this Christmas, maybe next week, maybe the month after, we too can partake of the true drama, the joy of worship. Yeah, what a great part of the Christmas story this is. Uh, So tough to wrap our minds around being a widow for that long and waiting, but this woman named Anna made worship her daily occupation, and because she was faithful, she didn't miss that day when the Messiah, baby Jesus, showed up in the temple. She was present and aware when that dramatic moment of rejoicing and worship occurred. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast. That was another part of the conversation in our series, Christmas Changes Everything. Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day are on the table with you for this fresh take on Christmas that I hope you're finding meaningful and thought-provoking this year. And next, the team highlights a familiar group of people that had to have been changed forever by that first Christmas. Now, we haven't talked about the Magi, the wise men, yet, have we? Well, then that's what we'll do after we take a quick time out so I can tell you about Elisa's new book, Christmas Changes Everything. Now, if you're enjoying this study with the group, I want to let you know that Elisa has authored a book called Christmas Changes Everything. And in fact, it was just released a few weeks ago. And in it, she follows much the same pattern as we've used to have our conversations here on Discover the Word. And I think as you read this book, you will learn to say yes to God, accepting his design for your life. It really would be a great follow-up to these conversations that we're having. And it may also be a way for you to share these insights with others. So let this Christmas change you as you reflect on how Christmas changes everything. Order Elisa's book for yourself or as a gift when you go online to discovertheword.org. Click on the Store tab up at the top of the page and you'll see how to order a copy of Christmas Changes Everything right there. And now, how might Christmas have changed everything for the Magi, the wise men? Let's explore that with the group. When did Christmas actually become Christmas to you? 
I don't want to go all spiritual on you or anything. Because you mean, never do that. Because I would never do that. But <laughs> I mean, I do remember having a distinctly different sense of Christmas the first Christmas after I came to Christ. Really? How old were uh, you? 21. Oh, see, that would be a very clear memory. Yeah. See, I came as a child. Yeah. And I was similar to that, Bill, in that I didn't understand Jesus' death for me yeah. until I was a teenager. And I do remember thinking stunningly. But you know what else I really remember, even though I've never given birth, I have adopted children, I remember thinking about it when I had our first child in my arms near Christmas time. You know, she was about nine months old then. But I remember thinking about Mary giving birth to Jesus, and it made Christmas different for me there, too. Mm-hmm. See, that's the one thought that I have in mind. After our son was born, mm-hmm. when you ask the question, that's the first time I could recall really feeling different about, mm-hmm. actually, it's different about life from there on, sure, let alone sure, Christmas. Sure. Right. Christmas becomes Christmas at some point when we understand it in its deepest significance, the significance of what God intended it to be, the birth of our Savior, Mm -hmm. who would save us from our deep need and our deep fallenness. We've been looking this week about how Christmas, real Christmas, changes everything. Who have we looked at as we've considered the characters in the Christmas story? And there are many that we haven't Mm -hmm. been able to cover, but... Talked about Mary, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And And how did Christmas change Mary and Joseph? Mary's life turned upside down. Yeah. And so did Joseph's. Um, Both of them had to accept angelic messages. Yeah. The visions or the encounters with an angel would be enough, right? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Then they had to become part of the story. Yeah. Their entire identities were changed. And then we looked at the shepherds, and Christmas made them witnesses, Mm -hmm. witnesses of the Lamb of God, not just of little lambs out in in the pasture, but of Jesus. We have one more character, group of characters you want to consider, and it's the Magi. So we're going to read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we'll just kind of dive into this and maybe stop along the way and see what we discover together. Bill, do you want to start us? Sure. Matthew 2, yes, verse, verse 1. one. Mm-hmm. Okay. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What do we know about Magi? That's kind of a weird word for us. They were astronomers or astrologers, something like that. Okay. Yeah, you know, my translation still says wise men. I like it a lot better, you know, because you see the bumper sticker, wise men still seek him. Yeah, It's just more meaningful. You get the impression that these were counselors, philosophers, that these were educated people. Yeah, there's a mystery around them. Yeah. We always think of three of them, don't we? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we've even named them in culture, you know, but the Bible doesn't actually say how many are there. It could be a whole caravan. You know, we named three and probably because we hear the three kinds of gifts that we'll look at later in the passage, but we don't really know how many. The purpose of this trip is to worship the newborn king of the Jews. These guys are from a long ways away. And you would think, well, you know, if it's local, if it has to do with the kingdom that we're a part of, then we need to do something about this. But the fact that they would go to the effort and expense of traveling Mm -hmm. as far as they apparently did... It means that there must have been something special about this that really got their attention. And I wonder how they're going to come away from their encounter Mm -hmm. with Jesus. So let's read on. We know that Herod was disturbed. We know that he got upset and he wanted the wise men to go and kind of rat out where the child Mm -hmm. king was so that he could, quote, go worship as well. And we know he didn't end up doing that. So let's skip down to verse 7 to 12 now. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. In verse 12, When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay. They see Jesus in a house. Also, he's called a child rather than a baby. What does that tell us about the timing here? 
that there may be an unknown time factor, right? Mm -hmm. okay. And the fact that Herod kills all the babies up to age two may give us a little bit of an idea of at least what he thought the time frame was. Mm. But it does seem like we've moved on from the night of the shepherds and the angels and all of that. Mm -hmm to a later time in the story. You know what I love about that is that it's so true for us. And we talked about when did Christmas become Christmas for us? It's when we understood who Jesus was. And for us, it's 2,000 years after this particular night with the shepherds. You know, it's a long time. And yet when we have this interaction with Christmas, this engagement with Christmas, we're different. And here we are maybe a year later or so, and we see it happening, and we're going to see it throughout Jesus' life. When people have an interaction with him, they're changed. And I think it's beautiful to see that they bring gifts fit for a king. What do we know about those gifts? What are they? Yeah, the gold, the frankincense, which is a kind of incense, right. and myrrh. So they're valuable, aren't they? Yeah. And Joseph has been warned a little bit earlier in this passage to take Jesus where? Egypt. Because why? Herod's going to try and kill him. I think it's fascinating that the wise men are a part of actually a kind of a, a bank account for Mary and Joseph and Jesus as they flee to Egypt. Maybe these gifts are what sustained them during this long time when they're in Egypt. You know, they had to leave all of their profession and all the wares that they had, and they're in a strange land. And maybe those gifts are what God uses to sustain them. And now go back and let's look to start at verse 10. When they saw the star, they were what? Overjoyed. I wonder what that means, overjoyed. And then in verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and they what? What did they do? They bowed down and worshiped him. Do you think it's the same kind of worship that they might have given to any king? It doesn't sound like no, it. And in, you know, in their background, mm -hmm. this whole idea of the star and everything, they had to have some kind of relationship or understanding of Jewish prophecy. Mm-hmm. Right? Good. Whether they got it through Daniel or whoever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there had to be something that they had learned because they came looking for the king of the Jews. Yep. So this prophecy has to be familiar to them. But, you know, it's interesting the way this passage ends in verse 12, Bill. Mm-hmm. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Warned in a dream. It makes me think, did God now appear to them as if they were believers, like he would have Mary and Joseph, as if they were followers ready, as he did to Mary and Joseph? We don't actually know. But aren't you blown away by the fact that they go back another route? They don't follow after Herod. They're somehow different. Is it because they've seen the Christ child because he is different than other kings? Christmas changes everything is what we were thinking of. But sometimes it's a gradual lifetime experience that we can't even put into words, but we live toward it. We have an interaction with Jesus in church on a Christmas Eve night. And two weeks later, we think about that message we heard. Or someone shares their faith with us. And two years later, we reconsider, wow, do I still believe in Jesus or do I want to start believing in Jesus? I just wonder if... It can become very personal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very different than hearing about something. Mm -hmm. And for the Magi, they had heard about him, mm -hmm. but now they had seen. Mm -hmm. And witnessed him. And witnessed Personally. Him. And received a message from God about him. Yeah. They bow down and worship. They have a dream. They go back a different way. We're not told exactly what they do as a result. But I've got to believe that just as in our lives, <laughs> Christmas changed them. It had to make a big, huge, life-changing difference. Sure. Sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes we walk our way towards the change. But Christmas does change everything. Yeah, Christmas radically transformed the lives of the people in the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, and it's still changing lives today. Well, we're looking at the Christmas story through the lens of these key characters, taking note of how, for them, Christmas changed everything. Now, the next part of the conversation will follow a slightly different trajectory than the rest of the series. Now, while Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and all the others we've talked about responded in a positive way to the coming of Jesus, Mart and Elisa and Bill will look at someone next who was, well, less than thrilled about Jesus' arrival. Not all change is good change, but for this person too, Christmas changed everything. 
Do you think our world kind of resists Christmas in some ways? Are you kidding? Preparations now. I mean, the lights show up in the stores mm. long before right. Thanksgiving. Every year it's earlier. It's like they're trying to get more and more of it all the time. Mm. And not just in our part of the world. I was in Manila in the Philippines, like the second week of October, and Christmas trees and decorations were already out. And some places in the Philippines start as early as September decorating yeah. for Christmas. <laughs> but I think maybe the question, Elisa and Mark, may have more to do with Christmas as the Bible presents it as opposed to Christmas as the culture celebrates it. Mm -hmm. Christmas as the culture celebrates it is not resisted at all. It's a make or break for many <laughs> businesses, right? Yeah. I mean, it's if, our whole economy built exactly. on it. Exactly. But the point that I was asking and thinking about is that we do resist real Christmas, and we embrace our invented Christmas. Where are you seeing that? Well, I think we've made a holy day into a holiday. You know, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. You know, that whole kind of an idea. I think we come to Christmas and we look at really the original Christmas and how it changed everything on our planet. And yet today, I think we push it away and we've turned it into something that it's not and was never intended to Are be. Are you saying intentionally or passively or unintentionally? What, what do you think? I think it's been evolutionary. Mm -hmm. I think it's just something that's happened over time mm -hmm. where there's been a growing distance between the Christmas story of the Bible and the Christmas celebration of our world. Mm. Yeah, and that makes sense. It's probably related to even a broader thought that almost everything that is truly of God is not natural to our own inclinations, yeah. right? That's well put. You know, we've been looking at the positive of how Christmas changes everything. And Christmas changed Mary, and she became pregnant with the Christ child. And Christmas changed Joseph, and he became really the stepfather of God on this planet. And Christmas changed shepherds from watching over sheep in a field to eyewitnessing the Lamb of God. And today I want to turn our attention just a little bit different way, kind of like a kaleidoscope clicks things into a different perspective. And I want to look at another character in the Christmas story and how he was changed. And that's Herod. Herod really went from an opportunity for faith into fear. And in this case, it was fairly intentional, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he resisted. Yeah. Christmas is probably a really clear example of pulling out, wow, here is someone who resisted God's intention for true Christmas. And it really stands in contrast to our earlier conversation on Joseph, who really had every legitimate reason, humanly speaking, to resist these events. And yet he accepted them fully and wholeheartedly. Yeah. Herod's going to fight it. But for good reason. I mean, he sees it as the loss of his kingdom. Yeah. He right? does. Yeah, it's a threat. Yeah. Christmas can be threatening to all of us in terms of rearranging what we value, what we put our hope in, and what we trust. That's exactly mm -hmm. what I think we're going to see in Herod. Let's read Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 to begin with. Mart, would you start us off there? Okay. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. Okay, let's punch pause for a second in this story, and then we'll come back and read a little bit more. But, you know, what do we know about Herod? He was a wonderful, gracious man, wasn't he? Generous. Everybody uh, felt everybody's safe in his favorite presence. Uncle. Yeah. yeah, he was, uh, first of all, I think to give him his due, he was a brilliant engineer. I mean, you go even today to Israel and you see the evidence of his building projects, which were fairly spectacular. Mm -hmm. Like what would you see? Well, the mountain fortress of Masada was his, the Herodium, which was a upside down ice cream cone filled with a palace. Um, <laughs> he built a magnificent temple mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. So he was not a good guy 
but he was a good builder. Okay. He wasn't from the line of David. He was an Edomite, so he wasn't qualified by his lineage to be king. Yeah, like distant mixed blood, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't even Jewish mm-hmm. in that That's sense. right. They're distant cousins. Yeah, like the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> <laughs> but he wormed his way into power and established really several generations, a dynasty of all kinds of guys named Herod something mm. that ruled over Israel for a very long time. Understandably then, wouldn't he have been worried when he hears about the birth of a true king being Mm. reported. Especially if that birth is taking place in Bethlehem, because Bethlehem is of the line of David, and he knows he's not. Right. Okay, in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was what, Mart? What do you have there? He was deeply disturbed. Deeply disturbed, and all of Israel with him. This deeply disturbed can mean more than just worried. It's implied here a kind of an emotional or even psychological problem. It also says that all of Jerusalem was worried or disturbed with him. And I wonder Uh if they know that he's a little bit unstable and they hear that his kingdom is threatened, who knows how he's going to respond. Mm. Maybe they aren't so disturbed by the news that a king is born as they are disturbed by the news that the king has heard that the news of a king was born. That makes sense. Yeah, and all of Jerusalem is mainly, I think it's talking about his administration and his followers. So you're right. Are we going to be fruit basket upside down here? Pretty scary stuff. And so then what happens is that he called together the people's chief priests and teachers and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He doesn't know, which you just alluded to, Bill. He's not really Jewish. He doesn't know the law. They're the ones who have to recite the passage from the Old Testament from Micah about where God's son, the king, the Messiah, is actually going to be born. And so then in verse 7, he calls the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time of the star. Now, the Magi, Herod wants to use them to do what? Do you think he's sincere when he says, oh, please, as soon as you find this child, report to me so that I too can go and worship him in verse 8? Well, apparently he's not sincere because as you get further into the story, you find out that he has a very different agenda for Bethlehem than worship. Yeah, but the Magi wouldn't have known that, right? No, no. Isn't that kind of a scary thing, how we can be unwittingly pulled into the ploys of evil? We need to all pay attention here. But isn't it also very true to life that here's a guy using worship as a cover for something else? Creepy. Mm -hmm. So disturbed, so emotionally and psychologically conflicted and confused Mm -hmm. that he forces his will. Let's pick up the end of this story with Herod again. How does Christmas change Herod? In verse 13, and we'll read through verse uh, 16, Mart. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Strong response, furious, is really enraged. It's like he was outwitted. It means he'd been played with or mocked. He did not like this. For Herod here, he really turned violent. That's who Herod was. That's what it says about his character. Talk about resisting Christmas. Wow. You know, Herod, rather than turning to worship the Christ child as he had hinted that he would to the Magi, he turned from faith to fear and ended up slaying anyone that could possibly be the Messiah. kind of a sobering way of looking at our idea that Christmas changes everything. Is our response to Christ moving us toward Him in faith, or is our response moving us away from Him in fear and unbelief? Well, our hope is that our conversations this Christmas will be a factor in your being drawn toward Him so that your faith will grow. Well, we've got one more segment to go, and so they're going to close this study for Christmas by 
reflecting back on the characters we focused on in the Christmas story. And Elisa has a word that she's found to be a common denominator in all the people's stories that we've looked at. That can help us see how Christmas can change everything for us, too. We'll be back with that word after a preview of our next podcast, which is one you definitely don't want to miss. For over 23 years, Haddon Robinson and Alice Matthews were at the table with Marty Hahn. They were the Discover the Word group. And as we close out 2022, we want you to hear some of the classic conversations they had as they came down toward the end of a year studying the Bible and as they were poised looking forward to a new year together. There was some timeless wisdom they shared in those conversations. For example... Well, blessed New Year. And a blessed New Year to you. And to you, Mart. Thank you, Ed. I think that when you come to a new year, you look back and you look ahead. That's the meaning of the word January, isn't it? Uh, Janus, the Roman god, had two faces, one looking back, one looking forward. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Yeah. I've met a lot of two-faced people, but (laughs) called Joe and Mary. (laughs) It's interesting. And I'm sure that there are many people looking back who would feel that Happy New Year is kind of a mockery. Mm. Stuff happened. They lost uh, someone close and dear to them. They're suffering health problems they never suffered before. And uh, they enter this new year not with eager anticipation, but with kind of gloom. But you can wish them a blessed new year. Mm. That is, wherever they go, wherever they have to walk, God will walk with them. Mm. Because he has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And don't miss these classic conversations with Haddon Robinson, Alice Matthews, and Marty Hahn. Reflections for the new year on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of Christmas Changes Everything. So here's the question as we really draw close to Christmas, you know, when did Christmas become Christmas to you? When did it become more than a holiday? You know, when did it become more than family? When was it born in your hearts? And how did it morph? How did it become real to you? Probably the first Christmas after I actually came to know Christ as my Savior. Up to that point, I mean, my family was huge Christmas celebration people, but it was all the cultural Christmas stuff and not so much the spiritual reality of it. And it was really only after I came to know Christ that the spiritual reality set in for me, and it meant more than just a tree and presence and all that. Mm -hmm. And Bill, that's good, because you know, for me, I don't have a clue. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably how my husband would answer it, Mark, too. I mean, his was like a gradual morphing. Yeah. And I think about an illustration that Haddon Robinson has shared that's really helped me. You know, sometimes you know exactly when you became a Christian, and sometimes you don't know. And he uses the illustration of a a person who went to bed at night, and he went to the blinds, and he closed the blinds, and he went to sleep, and he woke up the next morning, and he went to the window, and he opened the blinds. And he could look at his watch and tell you the exact moment when light came into that darkened room the next morning. Mm -hmm. And other people maybe go to sleep and leave the blinds open. And they wake up, and there's light in the room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all they know is that they went to bed, it was dark, and they woke up, and it was light, but they don't know the exact moment that light came into the room. And, you know, Jesus, even when he was talking about the new birth, he said it's like the wind. Mm -hmm. You can't see it. You don't know what direction it's going to come from always. And there is a mystery to the new birth. There is. I would say for me, if I'm just being blatantly honest... (laughs) there have been times I think where Christmas has felt like Christmas in the way that you're describing where that there's more going on here than the cultural celebration of Christmas. But I don't know that I've experienced that in a very long time where Mm. I felt like Christmas was something more than just something to go through the motions on. I think it's right on Daniel. And I think it's especially appropriate because you're a pastor. Mm -hmm. I spent 20 some years as a pastor and Christmas and Easter are really difficult for pastors because you have to keep finding creative new ways (laughs) to tell the same story. And after a while, it just becomes work. 
the Christmas season and church work is a very busy season. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of activity, and it's really easy to get burned out on Christmas just because there's so much to have to do when you're in ministry. Yeah, familiarity can become like the new normal. Yeah, it can, and it numbs you to it. Even as a parent, you know, think of all the ways we've tried to help our kids discover Christmas. You know, Mm -hmm. for years we've had a Jesus birthday cake, and we light the candle and we sing happy birthday to Jesus. And you know why? Because it helps little kids understand this is a real person, you know. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we're practicing Advent for the first time, and each Sunday we celebrate and think about and meditate upon a different element of the light coming into our world that Jesus brought. I mean, we're constantly trying to figure out how do I, how do I embrace Christmas now? And, and, you know, maybe that's why I was drawn to these characters in the Christmas story and the concept that Christmas changes everything. Because when Christmas becomes Christmas, it does change everything. It's like a kaleidoscope turning and everything falls in place differently and you see a different picture, a paradigm shift, and you can't go back, but you can take it for granted and forget Mm. about it. Mm. I guess I want to direct our attention to a, a surprising verb in the New Testament that Jesus used that really helps me think about freshly how I can respond to the celebration of Christmas. And it's a passage that might seem confusing, but let's look at it in terms of why am I picking this right here? But this is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. And let's just go around and read that mm-hmm. and listen for a verb that Jesus encourages his disciples to implement in their lives. Okay, the context here is it's after the transfiguration, the disciples couldn't heal the demon-possessed boy. Jesus talks about the way of the cross. He predicts his death. The disciples have this disagreement about their status, who's going to be first, who's going to be last. And then we come to these verses. Bill, would you start us and we'll go around. Mark 9, 30 to 37. Sure. Okay, so verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on that road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. They got caught. (laughs) He (laughs) sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. Isn't it interesting to read these words about welcoming a child, welcoming Jesus in the thick of the Christmas season where God gave the gift of his son as a baby. Isn't it interesting? The word welcome. You know, what if we think about this word welcome to express how we can relate to Jesus in this Christmas season? Jesus is speaking about the importance of children. It's back to what we've been saying all along, the surprise of the every person involved in the Christmas story. He surprises the disciples in this story and all who are listening by emphasizing that when we welcome children, the vulnerable, the needy, Jesus as a baby in our world, it really means to accept, to be receiving as you would a guest. And that implied a lot of honor. I mean, in the ancient culture in the Middle East, when you welcome someone into your home, there were certain things that you did to show honor to them as your guests. You had their feet washed, you anointed their head with oil, you welcomed them with a kiss. All of those things were part of not just accepting them and letting them in the door, but showing them that you were honored that they would come into your house. All of which seems to kind of beg the question then, okay, and what would the opposite of welcoming be? Hmm. Great, because what did the disciples want to do to the children? They wanted to send them away. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the opposite is what we see in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee 
and he does none of those honoring gestures mm. that the culture would call for. And as a result, rather than honoring mm. his guest, he shows great dishonor and disrespect for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe to ignore, yeah. maybe to be so focused on our own agenda or what we want that we kind of push past to what we want versus being open to how an interruption or a person might be welcomed and what they need might take precedent over what we want. Those are some things that come to mind of how we might not be welcoming. Yeah, disruptions can be a real pain. Yeah. Yes, yes, uninvited guests. When you really think of the threads of the gospel, there are so many inclusions in Jesus's interactions, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. the woman who reached out and touched him when she was having a bleed or, or the woman in, in Luke 7 who cries and anoints Jesus with her tears. You know, I mean, on and on, children coming. It is the unexpected, the uninvited, the interruption that Jesus continues to welcome. And, and as we think about Christmas, and look at all of these characters in the Christmas story. Christmas changed them because they welcomed mm-hmm. Christmas. We look at each one of them, you know, changed Mary from the betrothed and a virgin to the mother of Jesus. It changed Joseph from a grieving groom into becoming the stepfather of Jesus. Zechariah from a doubting man to a believing father. Elizabeth from a trusting but ashamed and disfavored woman into a rejoicing mother. Shepherds from watching lambs in a field to witnesses of the Lamb of God. Simeon from really believing and hoping but becoming a fulfilled follower. Anna, one who became a daily worshiper but then had an experienced conviction after seeing Jesus. The Magi, seeking after light to discovering its source. Even Herod, he moved from what could have been faith into total fear and lost himself. I think it's interesting, Elisa, that every one of those changes was positive until you come to the last one, which Mm -hmm. is Herod. And I think that's a good warning to us. Not everybody is going to respond favorably to this story. Not everybody's Mm -hmm. going to respond positively to the coming of Jesus. For some, perhaps it'll harden their heart. For others, perhaps it'll soften their heart. But not all are going to respond like Anna and Mm -hmm. Simeon and some of the characters we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And that is maybe what happens when we don't welcome him. That is, Mm -hmm. we are rejecting Christmas by not welcoming it. So, you know, as, as we truly put our hearts and our beings into whether you're decorating your house or inviting people over or buying a gift or decorating your tree, the verb I want to leave us with is the surprising verb of welcome, welcoming Christmas, welcoming the gift of it, welcoming the change that it offers, welcoming it, rolling out the mat and saying, you, your light, your life, your way is welcome here in my heart. Great conclusion to our study called Christmas Changes Everything. Thanks for being part of these special Christmas conversations on Discover the Word with Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. I think this has been a really helpful way to reflect on Christ's birth. By looking at the Christmas story through the lens of some of the well-known characters from the Bible and also some of those who are not as well-known. But for each of them, and for us, Christmas changes everything. Well, as we wrap up this Christmas edition of the Discover the Word podcast, uh, we just wanted to leave you with a, kind of a Christmas card from all of us here, wishing you Merry Christmas. So here's what each of the group members wanted you to know. Hi, I'm Bill Crowder with Discover the Word from Our Daily Bread Ministries. As we enter this wonderful season of the year where we celebrate together the birth of Jesus, We have so much to be thankful for in Him, and I trust that you and yours will experience His joy and His blessings in your lives as you celebrate the gift of His birth. Merry Christmas. Hey, this is Daniel Ryan Day from the Discover the Word team at Our Daily Bread Ministries. Just wanted to wish you and your families a Merry Christmas, and I just pray that the Lord gives you a deep and tangible sense of His love and His presence with you this year. Merry Christmas. 
I'm Elisa Morgan from Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries. Christmas is such a special time of year. It's a time when we celebrate the gift of Jesus. And you know, we do so because honestly, Christmas changes everything in our world and in our lives. Merry Christmas from all of us at Discover the Word. Hey y'all, this is Russell Berry from the Discover the Word team and Our Daily Bread. Just wanna wish you a very Merry Christmas and that you would discover more deeply the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Merry Christmas. Hi, this is Marty Hahn from Discover the Word. Let's share the joy and the peace and the amazing gift of God during this holiday season. Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks everyone. And I'm Brian Hedinga speaking for the entire behind the scenes team that makes Discover the Word work. Uh, Thanks for studying with us, and we hope that you do have a Christmas filled with hope and joy and peace as we celebrate the birth of this one whose birth changed everything. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And here at Discover the Word, our mission is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. But this ministry simply would not be possible without the support of friends like you. And so we invite you to partner with us and help make an eternal impact in the lives of those who listen to Discover the Word, those who read the Our Daily Bread devotional, or use any of our Bible engagement resources. You can make a special year-end gift right now when you go online to discovertheword.org. Click on the Donate tab. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.